we would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we record today, and pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to Rule Breaker Style Maker, a podcast breaking down the so-called fashion rules that we hold and that hold us back in our life and our style. Through conversations with industry guests and the Australian Style Institute team, we explore how breaking a rule can change your life. I'm your host, Lauren D. Bartolo. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back. In this episode, I sit down with the truly incredible Godwin Hilly of the brand Godwin Charlie. Godwin is a creative through and through. Not only is he a fashion designer, but his career has seen him go from all kinds of industries. And his story is one that I'm sure will connect with you on many levels. We explore bullying, resilience, finding your true passion, and what happens when everything goes wrong. I trust that you will enjoy this episode and I can't wait to hear what you think. So take us to where your career actually started. Very different industry. Yeah. So I was actually, you know, looking back, I was actually quite experimental with clothing throughout (laughs) throughout my life, actually, even from, from primary school. So mum, mum was a dressmaker Mm -hmm. and basically we grew up, um, only knowing clothes made from mum. So I have two siblings, two sisters. I I sit in the middle of both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're also two, they were two little performers growing up as well in terms of, you know, musical theater. Mm -hmm. So costumes and sewing machines and buying fabric from spotlight were pretty normal for me growing up. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I only know of, you know, clothing for me wasn't going to a store and buying it. Clothing was going to spotlight first or actually take a step back, watching video hits in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, looking through magazines. Saturday mornings. Right. Is, yeah. Um, watching basketball videos. That, that was our, that's how we connected to culture. And I mean, I loved basketball growing up. So um, for me, Michael Jordan and what they used to wear on TV, I was heavily influenced by. Mm-hmm. But going back to even to primary school, um, the MC Hammer sort of phase, um, my happy pants didn't come from Kmart and Target. <laughs> my happy pants came from Spotlight because I would choose my fabrics yeah. and then mum would make me, you know, three. I remember having three or four different colours, the envy of all my, my uh, primary school friends. And then when that blue light disco came around, you know, <laughs> no, I, I pulled really out. My, taking me back. I, I pulled out my uh, my favorite happy pants. So for me, you know, even back then, I was always trying different things, mm-hmm. and it was very natural for me to look at fabric and go, up, oh, I think that will look good." No idea I'd be doing it for a living. Um, and then through high school, obviously, mum and dad were, you know, hardworking. We didn't have a heap of money, but they worked hard for us three kids, and we always felt like we got what we wanted and um but one area that they continued to i guess save to support us going through school and holidays was was still clothing so even my school uniform instead of going to the school uniform shop mum made everything to the to the point that she made my blazer and then we bought the school badge yeah and she sewed it onto the garment so i was the only kid in school that had 
a sewn-on badge versus everyone else's blazers who were embroidered. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> so that's kind of that's what I know. My years of um, of my, you know, up until ten and then into my teens, being like, you know, um, then when I got to earning my own money and realizing that you can buy clothes from shops, mm. you know, um, <laughs> it was really more about um, op shops. And vintage stores. So in my late teens, um, I realized that dad's dad's wardrobe, um, I drew a lot of inspiration from. Again, this was all just organic, just what fits me, what do I like, what shapes do I like, not thinking this is a career. But my eye was always there around fit, what I felt suited me best. And I would go searching for that. And because dad's old wardrobe from like the 70s fit me really well, I thought, okay, well, more of this must exist in like op shops and vintage stores. And, and that's where I would spend a lot of my time. Um, so much so that um, I would do it even on my travels overseas. So in 2004, when I graduated from uni and I was traveling Europe, you know, I would seek out vintage stores all over Europe. Um, and there was one in Sweden, which I just absolutely, in Stockholm, that I absolutely just fell in love with. And I brought all this stuff back and just mum kind of just tweaked them, you know, turned pants into shorts and long sleeve shirts into short sleeves and, you know, took things in and changed collars. And that's just what I did so that things could fit me the way I wanted them to fit. I was a slim guy and still pretty slim, but fashion just wasn't geared towards that shape back when I was growing up. You are so fortunate. And I know you know this, but mm. to have that in-house service yeah. of a mum that could <clears throat> customise and tailor things to you to, and also to give it your own edge. is just That's incredible. Godwin, could you take us back to early days? Because for so many creatives, and I mean for humans in general, that's where a lot of our story um, begins and comes full circle. So take us back to what it was like being at school. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Um, high school was was a mixed bag for me. Um, I discovered early on um, that if I applied myself well enough academically that I could achieve quite good results and that kind of became a, a drug early on. So year seven, ducks are year seven, then it became year eight and then it became year nine. But then as my sporting accomplishments started to sort of develop as well, um, my peers didn't like that and um, I was targeted by the, I guess, the bullies in the, the year levels for overachieving. Um, and the fact that my name was Godwin as well didn't, didn't help. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there, was a, there was a part of, of my early years in high school where even the teachers thought it was a bit funny that um, the, or in some classes, that uh, my name would be chanted almost like and, and some of them would get down on their knees and sort of bow towards me, chanting my name. And then it became like this herd mentality where everyone would just get on the bandwagon of chanting my name. And it was all, it was all because um, I was achieving on, on two fronts. And the school wasn't, I guess, a safe space for me to, to flourish. Um, and even amongst all that, I just kind of put my head down and, and tried to do my best and... Um, as a result of all of that, um, I embrace my name so much so that it's my brand. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The yeah. thing that was chanted back then mm. for 
you know, potentially malicious or just immature reasons Correct. is now the very thing that is celebrated. In fact, celebrated in a prime piece of Melbourne real estate right now <laughs> um, in an incredible store and congratulations Thank you. on that. To see your brand come together in such a historical way as well because you're in one of the oldest buildings in Melbourne. In fact, I had the great opportunity of, of popping by recently and, um, and there's even an old safe. It's an old bank, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was an old. It was a building developed as Melbourne was coming out of the depression, depressive mm-hmm. years, and um, post World War Two. And it was, I guess, a beacon of prosperity and, and hope for the city of Melbourne when uh, the Bank of New South Wales set up shop um, where I am today. So, um, so I'm still operating on the original parquetry floors and. Um, the, the old safe that would have stored, you know, the gold bullions of the time and <laughs> people's jewels this still is now my storage space out the back. So, yeah, it's a beautiful building and, and lots of history. That's so good. It houses a different kind of gold now. It's the product that you get to adorn all of your clients in. Exactly. So uh, at the time of experiencing bullying and just sort of immaturity of kids, where did you, because your story, and I know we're going to explore this today, has lots of turns in times of needing to rely on, I imagine, like a real sort of inner resilience. Um, we can get opinions and advice from other people within industry or business, but at the end of the day, all of the decisions that we make do have to, you know, we navigate them and, and decide on them. So what did you lean upon then? And is it still the thing that you lean upon now? What has it evolved? Look, I'm blessed that I have two amazing parents mm-hmm. who have supported me and, and stood by me since day one. And I think it's it's them that got me through the high school years. Um, and having and having not only their support but the, the support of the school, they want they needed kids in the school to achieve, you know, and to set a good example. And for me to leave um, would have, I guess, you know, from the outside looking in. Um, would have put a bit of a dent in, in my ear level anyway because there wasn't much quality left after that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, um, it was, yeah, my, my parents that really stood by me and always have and supported and, um, and even during, you know, business um, and turns along the way career-wise, I've always turned to them and they've always just supported me and held me and I guess – um, encouraged me to do what makes me happy. Yeah. You know, and... And in the early days, that mm. wasn't fashion. So then m- for most of us, this kind of real world dawns on us and we need to then choose a career path. What was your next move from there? So high school, um, year 12, once I let go of my dream to become a professional basketballer, letting go of that in year 12, I was left with, okay, now what do I do? What do I study? What, mm-hmm. are, what are my focuses? And my, the subjects, the subjects I chose were quite broad. I remember I did, um, physics and accounting and there was, I think a language in there and, um, some IT. It was just very general and it's, in, it's where I kind of landed. You know, I ended up, um, in a, in a business marketing, uh, business bachelor of business accounting because I thought it's a general business degree that could take me somewhere maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fortunate that I got a traineeship with um, PricewaterhouseCoopers or PwC mm-hmm. coming out of high school. So I studied part-time and worked full-time. 
as a 19 year old. But very quickly I realized that, you know, accounting wasn't really my thing, but I enjoyed the dressing up part, right? So here I was, I was 19 earning about, I think I was on Mm $19,000. That was our full-time wage. And, um, yeah, we, I had to allocate some of that to what I wore every day. And, um, in my first year at PwC, there was this, um, he would have been about 22, 23, this guy called Peter who always dressed immaculately. And I thought, how can this guy look this good all the time, like in these suits? Anyway, we were putting on a, put on a job together and we spent three and a half months, um, on a job at 55 Collins. And, um, I discovered that his father ran and owned a tailoring workshop in Collingwood, just around the corner from here. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by it. And, um, everything fit him so well, unlike my cheap suits that I was wearing. And, um, we just became good friends. And before I knew it, I was, um, at this facility in Collingwood, just on Wellington street and, and fell in love with the fabric room. And it was almost like, you know, and I I wasn't joining the dots back then, but there was something comfortable about looking at old rolls of fabric, the potential of what they could become, you know? And so being a, a manufacturing facility, they used to make for all the major brands in Melbourne at the time and also nationally, also some of the uniforms for the fire brigade and the police and so forth. So a very capable facility. But the garments that I was making for customers just still weren't my cup of tea. Like I still wasn't loving the fit, but dad's old wardrobe fit me well. So I asked permission to bring some of those garments in mm-hmm. for them to look at. And in the end, they just ended up creating patterns for me based on dad's old wardrobe, which then became, I guess, my blueprint to then go into that fabric room and grab what I wanted. And it were the tweeds that for me, I loved, you know, the texture, the weight, being a slimmer guy. I loved fabrics that felt heavy. Mm-hmm. And I was turning some of these, which were old jacketing and blazer fabrics into trousers. And I remember my first pair of pants that I had made for myself were a grey check with a sort of red pinstripe through them. Sorry, a red check through them. Um, almost a Prince of Wales type of trouser in a tweed. And at the time, they didn't want to make them for me because that fabric was allocated for jacketing. And I'm like, well, just cut them into pants for me, you know. Anyway, these pants became the number one go-to in my wardrobe because every time I wore them, people would just compliment me all the time. Mm -hmm. And it was very similar feedback that I was getting in my years at PwC. So because of my focus on what I wore every day um, became such such a feature, it became what I was known for. So all the women, so all women, all the grad girls and the younger girls in my kind of pods of, of desks would then turn to me for advice. So they would either ask for me to attend lunch with them to go and pick out some shoes or they would <laughs> share with their purchases from lunch with me after, after lunch. You were the guy to go to. Correct. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, what's happening here? You know? And I quite enjoyed the attention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that for me was a very natural instinct, you know, giving my opinion on what people wore. Instinct is something that I think is really interesting. And I do want to touch on that for a moment. Um, I know that 
this had always been a love for you, uh, as you said, you know, even being younger and then going into your father's wardrobe, but it wasn't always something that you accepted. Mm. Um, so we can have a natural instinct, but whether we accept that and lean into it is, is a different story. Can you um, share with us what that was like to realise that, hang on, I do have this here, but am I willing to, to yeah, to accept it? Because what society would think, particularly at the time, was maybe different to what was going on for you. Yeah, and, um, you know, even you talking about where I think you're leading this conversation kind of gives me goosebumps because once I, as a young boy in my early 20s, once I discovered that where my natural instincts laid, it was more creative, it was fashion-related, it was giving style advice, um, it was you know, about the way we looked. Um, it was um, during a time that my sisters and I had started a performing arts school. So um, that for me was another creative outlet, which I loved being around, even if I was just sort of running the business. Being around a dance school, singers, dancers, was something I, I just naturally thrived being around, thinking creatively. Um, discovering that for the first time, but but society was telling me something else, and um, I knew growing up that I liked girls. You know, from the from the from grade prep, I would you know chase and be chased by girls. It was just something I loved. It's something I got from old Hollywood movies that I grew up watching, Doris Day and the Blonde Beauty. Um, and the stereotypical man and the stereotypical woman of the time um, was very much how I was brought up, um, watching Grease and wanting to be a T-bird like John Travolta. <laughs> you know, these sort of strong masculine characters chasing girls was just something I just loved doing. But once I discovered in my sort of late teens, early 20s that my... I guess, natural instincts um, pigeonholed me um, towards more of a, a gay man. Um, that was very much a, um, a point in where I kind of I, I, I stopped leaning into the creative side because I was scared of what my natural instincts were telling me towards fashion and being creative. Because if you were into fashion and creative, it would mean... That I was gay. Uh-huh. Um, not because I had any strong or any um, attraction to a male in that way, but I was very uncomfortable at the time around um, potentially revealing that side, um, which I may have been, you know... Um, hidden within, which is why I'm now just expressing these these new found talents, mm -hmm. let's say, uh, because none of my friends displayed this. No, no boy or man that I saw in the movies or growing up playing sport had my natural instincts. So if there's no one around you that had those natural instincts and you've got this internal conversation going on about what does that mean for you, what what made it okay? I know there was a pivotal conversation that you had with someone that yep. 
that helped things to become clear or uh, cement. Could you share that with us? Yeah, sure. Um, there were some very uncomfortable dating situations that I experienced in my early 20s with some really gorgeous girls that for me were like everything I was looking for in a girl. Mm -hmm. And growing up a good Catholic boy as well, you know, the topic of sex for me was not something that you do casually, right? Mm -hmm. So even into my early 20s, casual sex was like forbidden for me. And even though it was happening around me, I, I never felt comfortable. So for me, once I met the right girl, in my opinion, it was then once I expressed love for that person, could I then mm -hmm. engage in, you know, intimate relationships with a girl? Which isn't something that we hear, particularly in Australian society, um, for a male to say. Correct. It's, that's not the sort of the common conversation, at least broadly speaking, of course, um, there's exceptions to every rule. Um, but this, that, that's interesting. Yeah. So I was never sexually active in my teens. Yeah. Um, and because of my focus was so academic and so sport driven, mm. I let go of chasing the girls mm -hmm. through high school. So, I'm, so here I am now in my early twenties going through uni, dating girls for the first time really. And I'm sitting across restaurant tables and bars and these girls are looking at me going, are you sure you're not gay? And I'm like, why do you say that? And they're like, well, you're a really nice guy and you're polite and you're, you dress so well and you've got such an opinion in that space. Like, you know, are you sure you're not gay? Hearing that over and over again and then connecting that to what were my natural instincts and looking back at my high school years of being bullied and not really being active at all sexually... I started to sort of think, well, maybe I am gay. And I freaked out. To the point that anxiety kicked in really early and I didn't know what that was. I didn't have the tools that I have today to manage it. And I would be on dates with girls and I would panic. And I would panic even if I felt that the date was going well. My internal kind of barometer was like exit, exit, exit. Like you can't deal with this, you can't handle this. And I felt that those feelings of uncomfortableness were my body saying that you're not into this, you should be into boys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a number of these awkward experiences with girls um, were playing out and I just thought I needed help. I needed to – my parents couldn't – didn't understand it and I was scared to discuss it with them, right? Like it just – I didn't, know, I didn't know who to turn to. And I had a mentor at the time and he was a, a Dr. John Cheatham. Um, bless his soul, he's now not with us. But he was a big fan of mine. Um, we were – I was also part of another cadetship program coming out of high school um, that nurtured more high-performing kids on who were from at the west side that didn't quite have the opportunities that the bigger school kids did um, to align them with um, places of work, um, pay for tuition, university tuition, offer further tuition, private tuition, um, and basically just hold us 
through our university years to be the best versions of, our, of ourselves. And the head of that program at the time was 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 John, and and I turned to John, and I and I and I remember being on a phone call with him, and I was like, John, um, I have these feelings of anxiety. Well, I wasn't calling it anxiety at the time because I mm-hmm. didn't know what that was, but you know, feeling uncomfortable and nervous and, and I, th- I think I might be gay. And he laughed in his deep baritone voice. And he was, I'm like, what's, why are you laughing? He said, oh, God. He's like, I've seen how you are around girls. I go, he goes, I've always known you as the Casanova. I go, he's like, you, he's like, answer me this question. He said, God, he said, do you look at boys or men and find them attractive? I said, well, I size them up in the men's change rooms when I'm at the gym, you know, more so from a, a young boy turning into a man, you know, am I physically strong enough? I go, but apart from that, no. He's like, well, there's your answer. He's like, and what, what's driving you to feel this way? And I would explain the, the fashion side of things or, or the, the styling. I would explain the, the shopping, the fussiness around what I wore, um, he saw how much I was thriving around the, the performing arts school environment that we, my sisters and I had created. And he said to me, he said, Godwin, go do me a favour. I want you to do as much research as you can on Hugh Jackman um, and, and understand his, his backstory. And, um, and I did. And I went away and I read his book and just anything I could consume around Hugh Jackman, I did. And I quickly realised that you can be creative you can lean into that side you can be a man and you can do that all by loving women (laughs) and that was okay you know and that was okay and and that for me was a huge turning point you know and I began at sort of the ages 23 24 to really um accept who I was still very tentative but open myself up to opportunities that presented itself um, without being fearful of who I was attracted to and, um, you know, here I am um, with a partner, you know, and and babies number two and three on the way. <laughs> <laughs> Life is about to get even more interesting mm. and exciting. Yeah, like, wow, like this um, conversation this morning is really um, taking me deep. It's it's nice to join the dots going, going back, you know, and um, and even just sort of sit with that and understand, you know, where I've come from and how far I've come is, um, yeah, big thank you to you. And it's like I'm having recorded therapy here this morning. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it's not often that we get to to do, like you just said, join the dots in that mm. way. And I think to cope in life, we're really good at just moving past things. You mentioned something to me which completely blew me away which was that you arrive at your store in the morning. Can you tell us what happens when you look at that sign? Yeah, so I guess based on reflecting on the bullying years at high school, um, I was actually targeted um, one afternoon with eggs. You know, I was getting onto the school bus on my way home and the bullies of the year level were were throwing eggs and um, one of them almost hit me in the head and hit my school bag and... As long as they didn't hit the blazer that no. your mum made for you. <laughs> no, the relic. Um, but I think about, you know, the issues I face with my name 
and now it being such a, a dominant part of my brand and what people actually really love about my brand, you know, I've, I've just realized that instinctively every morning I turn up to my store and I, I double check all the signage to make sure that nothing's been graffitied or damaged or even if an egg has been thrown, you know, it's, it's, I just realized how, how often I do that, you know, um, being in such a prominent site now and, and even in years gone by, you know, that being targeted for who I was and, and, and my name was, um, I guess it's, there's still some scar tissue there from those years, you know, um, but um, thankfully. It's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> Decades have gone by. Yeah, yeah. And your name is more celebrated than it's ever been. And that's still this schoolboy, mm. you know, visual that comes up. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing what how memories play out. And um, I'm really glad that this conversation has been a space even just to realise, you know, really how far you've come. Speaking of how far you've come, your story is um, interesting on what you share and reveal personally, um, but also from the business front. Could you share with us, once you had had that chat with John and it had become, you'd had this sort of clarity around, actually, no, this is who I am. What started changing Mm. when you became... Uh, I keep using the word clearer, but just more sure of who you were. Yeah, well, I think, you know, touching on the the Hugh Jackman reference and, and really understanding his story, you quickly realise that this guy is, you know, incredibly handsome, um, such a powerful male figure. You know, the bloody hell, the guy's a superhero, like the guy's Wolverine, and yet he can so confidently and powerfully perform The Boy From Oz, you know, on the biggest stages around the world. And I, and I just thought, wow, you know, you can you can explore these sides of you and you can be embraced and you can be celebrated um, and you can achieve creatively. And, you know, for me, that was a huge turning point. And, um, yeah, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't long after that that um, around the age of 24, uh, 25, um, actually at 24, I applied. Um, a, a, a friend of mine, she was working in PR at the time, um, she came across... A, an ad for, um, at the time it was the L'Oreal Melbourne Fashion Festival. Um, Robert Buckingham, who was the festival director at the time, was looking for an assistant to basically be his side, you know, number two for the whole week of Fashion Week. And I was like, wow, that sounds pretty cool. I had no idea what it would involve. And um, basically went for the interview. I just finished studying accounting just graduated from my marketing degree and advertising. So I'd spent five and a half years at uni um, and, you know, working around the performing arts school and was starting to kind of discover that, okay, I need to pursue a creative lifestyle. Like that's, that's my thing. What it looked like I didn't know. And one of the first experiences was being um, um, Robert's assistant. Uh, the festival director's assistant. So um, that six days, and we sit here today, right, in the middle of um, Melbourne Fashion Festival. Um, if we rewind fast, you know, rewind back to 2005, sorry, 2004, um, I was right amongst it with John, uh, sorry, with Robert um, at all the shows, all the rehearsals, and I got this buzz and I'm like, what is this? What am I feeling here? Um, and really lent into it, 
really lent into it. And not long after that, um, that guy, Peter, who I'd met at PwC four years earlier. Well-dressed uh, Peter. Well-dressed Peter. Um, called me to catch up for coffee. And um, he had taken over his father's manufacturing facility. His dad was retiring. And it was Peter's job to kind of, I guess, resurrect the business from being predominantly a wholesale manufacturing business um, towards being more of a retail business. And to do that, you needed a brand. Um, and you needed someone to lead that brand. So here I was, fresh from my fashion festival experience, now in conversations with Peter, the son of a master tailor, wanting to pretty much collaborate with me, who had no idea about fashion, or production or manufacturing or anything of those mm-hmm. professionally. Like I'd studied accounting and marketing, not fashion. <laughs> sure. Um, and here we were having conversation over coffee around potentially um, exploring a retail concept. Okay. Things um, changed pretty quickly at very, that point. Very quickly. And, and, <laughs> but it excited me, Lauren. Like for the first time, um, you know, although I had moved from accounting into marketing, which I thought was my creative outlet, and then into advertising, which I thought was more of a creative pursuit, you know, to really embracing the performing arts school, but it not being quite my, my thing, to now getting really excited about fashion. And not only fashion, but creating a brand in this industry. I read a book at the time. I think the title was, um, I can do anything as long as I know what it is. Something like that. The title Uh went. And one of the chapters was dedicated to um, approaching your 10 closest people in your life. It could be family, could be friends. Mm -hmm. And getting them to list what they believe to be um, your, I guess, what you're destined to become. And nine of the ten all put fashion or something to do with styling at number one. Wow. And I'm like, what is this? The boy who studied accounting then marketing advertising is known by everyone in as his this, circle. But no one had actually as- told me. Wow. No one had actually said, you need to be doing this. They only, they only came to me for advice and I basically just brushed it off as just like, I'm just like, just good at that. I did not know that people, people viewed me as that could be something you could become professionally, you know, involved with. And so taking that information, taking the fashion festival experience and now in conversation with the son of a tailor, it all just started to make sense. I would absorb st- like style, color, texture very, very easily. And I still do. It's, I guess it's my thing. Yeah. I could literally just pick up a magazine and I can literally do that and I would get a read on color, shape and get excited by that. So I lent into that. Um, As you said, it gave you energy. Yes. We need to listen to that. Correct. It's funny what we have um, a photographic memory mm. for as well. I can tell you what was in the wardrobe of the first client I ever dressed, but I, I can't tell you like what I did yesterday. Yep. Um, that's a true creative. 
So you were spending your time doing these things, magnation, like water, research. Yeah, yeah. research yep. um, at really the, at, learning the lay of the land of this business. Correct. So I'd spend my yep. weekends. So my Saturdays were spent unknowingly to everybody or in my circle that I was learning to become a, a tailor, right? So I would spend my more, my basically half a day at the workshop in Collingwood, serving clients, mm-hmm. understanding the craft under the, um, you know, tutelage literally of these master tailors that were bespoke handmaking garments for, for these clients who would, um, who would attend this facility um, as a bit of a backdoor kind of, you know, our little secret. You can get mm. things made for yourself if you know this family, if you know this place. And, and I just loved what that meant. And I, lo- I found, and it's weird when I hear myself say this, but I found the, the act of helping someone get dressed to the best of their ability, I found it very beautiful. Like I found that, like we all have a basic need to get dressed in the morning. And I was able to do that for someone and make them feel good in the process. And I didn't realise at the time the impact that was having on me. And, and like just people loved me being in that, playing that role. Um, and it was such a... And the one thing that kind of held me back a little bit was the fact that I wasn't reading a book. I wasn't studying for an exam. I wasn't studying to achieve, a, you know, an academic um, award yep. or certificate to say that I'm, mm-hmm. I've achieved yes. a Bachelor of Business or whatever. So I felt like it was a, a little below me. But... I kept listening to the fact that it gave me energy mm-hmm. and I, I loved helping people and being around people in this capacity, right? And, and I was never encouraged as a, from my parents to, to move into this space, but it was always something I pursued. I, I'm like, I want to find that thing that, yeah. that gives me this energy. Um, and it was before all the TikTok, <laughs> you know, clips that we now absorb every day. It was all yeah. before the whole word of, well, before the world turned into wanting to become entrepreneurial, that wasn't even a word. But I just knew that I needed to do something that made me feel happy and creative. And you listened to that, which I think is, you know, your success today and just your evolution today wouldn't mm. exist if you didn't challenge some of those rules that we are and particularly at the time were conditioned yep. with that um, – a specific path of academia needs to be required to have some weight or legitimacy in the business world or as a career that boys do this and girls do that. And if you're creative, it means this. There's a whole bunch of binary rules that we define business and personal life by that I think particularly at the time you were really breaking. Mm. 100%. Which is incredible. And none of you know, what you've done up until this point exists without breaking those rules. And going through those periods of uncomfortableness. Like yeah. now we read books and there's literature around being, you've got you to be comfortable to be un- when you're uncomfortable, you know, mm-hmm. and it's through those uncomfortable moments that we grow and we learn. And I look back and I think that were, they, were my, they were my 20s, yeah. you know, yeah. from a professional point of view mm-hmm. and also personally. And, um, and, I, and, and it wasn't until my 30s where I really lent into that, um, through the heights of the business and then the, the lows. So tell us a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Y- you 
were on a trajectory of highs and then um, there was a crossroads in the story. Could you give us a little bit of context and I guess what were the defining moments that have led you from there to here? Yeah. So in 2007, I opened my first store um, and it quickly grew. So basically for every year, every year I was in operation, we're opening a new store. Mm-hmm. So it went from Little Collins to then Collins Street and then Chapel Street and then um, Emporium and then Richmond and then Chadston and then Westfield Doncaster and then online. And all of a sudden... That's a lot of retail footprint in it, one city. In one city. Yeah. Um, and, you know, w- we were being guided by our peers who were being compared against, you know, the bigger, the bigger brands at the yes. time. But I was being considered as one of them now, right? So, so we just kind of tried to mimic their footprint. Mm-hmm. And um, little did we know that, you know, you probably needed a bigger financial backing than we had. We are trying to sort of self-fund ev- all of our activity, which didn't leave room much room for error. Um, and as the bi- business grew and I was now employing 25 staff, um, you know, I think at one point I was running about six stores at once, um, different layers of management, a head office. It just got all too much. And I and I, I can only say this in hindsight, but that really curious boy that enjoyed being creative mm-hmm. and styling and helping people look their best was now sitting in an office on Wellington Street trying to, you know, manage the highs and lows of running a business, you know. And although I was in a creative position, the the little contact I now had of not being with the customer and, and, and really tapping into why it was that I got into this business in the first place, um, it it took me away from, from my passion um, and it broke my soul, and I, you know, and it wasn't until I was introduced to a, a book around um, nurturing your soul mm-hmm. that I realised that I completely neglected myself and, and what made me happy. Um, and years and years of, of doing that became um, anxiety, became sleepless nights, became depression. So here I was, you know, this brand that was um, on all the major retail strips or centres. From the outside. From the outside. It was Next being store, growing. Correct. Yeah. Yep. I just opened my, my flagship store at Chadston in their new development. They were celebrating me, you know. Um, you know, when I, I looked out of my store, it was Zara, Uniqlo. You Some know, pretty major company that you were keeping. My, my neighbour was Calvin Klein. Mm-hmm. To my left was... Um, my left was the likes of Calibre and Aquila, you know. You're saying these biggest names in the world, right, particularly Calvin Klein's next door, and yet you mentioned Soul Crushing. And isn't I didn't it want to be there. I, did not yeah. want to, I didn't want to be there. So I launched my final store that I'd opened. I launched it with media and it was, it was awful. Like I, I was just... You know, I reckon I, I, t- I turned up to that event on probably an hour's sleep, um, medicated, um, very unhappy, 
uh, had realized as well that the relationship I was in, um, engaged to be married, by the way, mm-hmm. um, four months out from this, was probably not the place I wanted to be. Okay. And um, it all just came tumbling down. I just couldn't do I, 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 the, the The armor that I had built that I thought I was so resilient to sort of cope and deal with was was crumbling around me and um and I wasn't sure what was happening and um from that point onwards I literally took four and a half months I couldn't I couldn't work I couldn't function couldn't lead the business and um literally disappeared um and tried to get help um and this is happening when I just literally just opened and invested the most amount of money ever and I couldn't be the leader that I had needed, the business needed me to be um, and didn't quite understand that. Um, but it also, <laughs> it also exposed, as I mentioned, um, probably I was in the wrong relationship mm-hmm. um, and I needed to make change. And there's so many different points in our life, particularly when the stakes are high like Mm. this, where there's changes that did need to be made. Sometimes we know that deep down. Sometimes we don't know until we do. It's Mm. something that sort of um, shows itself. But if we don't make the change, the change is going to happen anyway. And sometimes it's not in our choosing. I mean, for you to be away from the business for that time in such a place, I imagine, like real internal pain not how you would have chosen it but it was going to happen one way or another change change comes in interesting ways yeah whether it manifests in our health or our relationships or incredible and the mental health struggles and, and again it wasn't even a buzzword we're talking mm-hmm. 2000 well at least a buzzword in my world anyway you know we're talking 2015 2016 yeah and i just yeah. didn't know what was happening I, d- mm-hmm. I hadn't really never ever acknowledged anxiety before and why I wasn't sleeping um, and the support that I had then was quite sterile the whole idea of going and sitting in front of a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor was still very like like taboo like you just like it's what sick people did okay you know and um, but I had no choice like I was just I, I was once sleep gets taken from you and you mentally can't function yeah. and be, al- be al- alone, like I couldn't be alone, Lauren. Like I was at home. For fear of what might happen? For just fear of just being alone okay, and being left with my thoughts. Yeah. You know, I remember I had a, a pug mm-hmm. with my partner and I was at home in my, in my apartment and even the pug, looked concerned for me and would and would come and comfort me. Wow. He could sense that Dog I was sense. correct yeah. and it would sit on me in, in ways that, and look at me like, you're not well, you know. Um, and uh, without going into all the detail around, you know, what I was experiencing in those sort of darker days, you know, I would need my dad to come and spend the day with me. That's how bad it got, you know, and we would walk to the – church i was living in Kew at the time and we'd walk to the church in um in hawthorne and we would sit in the church and i just kind of you know growing up a catholic boy that was that's how my dad 
could deal with this. Like he didn't understand, didn't have the tools to teach me from a mental health point of view, which mm-hmm. I now have. His way was let's sit in the presence of God and ask for help and guidance. And we did that. Um, but, um, but it wasn't until I had to face the challenge of my relationship and make a decision on that, which was to end it, was it when I could then face the challenges of my business. So I was dealing with two very heavy, heavy weights on my shoulders. And um, the stress of my business snowballed into looking inwards into my relationship. And then, okay, I've got to deal with one thing at a time. And once I, I ended the relationship, which was probably the most awful time of my life and saddest, then gave me the space whilst living back at my parents, sleeping on a single mattress in the kitchen, like in the living room, gave me the space to realise that um, there are issues in my business that I am yet to fully uncover and, and, and fully reveal to myself and to anyone else. Um, and um, it just happened that my mother's brother was visiting from Malta, never been to Australia. He's a Jesuit priest and his role in Malta is to mentor, teach and guide the youth through life. And he turns up that Christmas. So we're talking this is November. He turns up in December and it's like those prayers were answered, you know, in church, you know. Um, and I was also a friend of mine had a friend of mine had um, gone through a similar sort of down um, similar experience with uh, his big corporate at the time, and was and was um, shown um, or introduced to a, an executive coach. Mm-hmm. Her name was Jackie, and um, in combination between Jackie and my uncle Godwin, that's his name. The Jesuit, the Jesuit priest, priest is, is, his Godwin. Name is Godwin, who I was named after. Amazing. Who's mm-hmm. now living at home with my parents whilst I'm on the single bed, single yeah. mattress on the floor, in the, right? Just became, he helped me, and I'm getting emotional thinking about this. Um, he, Help me understand the importance of your soul. Sorry. And um, the importance of um, putting yourself first. Which I'm guessing at this point you hadn't done in a no. very long time. On either front, relationship. Everything. Everything. I was a puppet in my business Um, and um, I was a bit of a yes man in the relationship and Godwin was, I didn't didn't know how to define him. I didn't know what fun was Um, and for me surviving in business was all I was trying to do and... um, yeah, with these two incredible people now in my life, they basically piece me back together. Um, 
and because I could take the time off with mum and dad's help, um, they gave me the home to do it. I just, I applied myself for like, you know, four months and did all the hard work, you know, all the deep work. Um, the self-work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is the hardest work of all, I think. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I love that your dad took you to church, <laughs> which not everyone listening would be able to even you know, understand, or maybe some people maybe have never walked into a church. But what was created in that environment was space, the space to reflect, the company of someone sat right beside you, and the room for conversation without yeah. judgment. I mean, if a you know church can't do that, then <laughs> what purpose really does it serve? It's for real conversation, connected conversation. And it was, you know, these words from my uncle at the time, because um, I, I, I was suffering from also like separation anxiety. So once mm. I moved back home, yeah, right. I almost always like I'm I'm thirty. I'm 36, right? And I couldn't, I was uncomfortable without seeing my parents in wherever I was. Like I needed, I could barely face the world. Mm -hmm. And even in the the safety of our family home, like I needed them around me all the time. Um, And I remember that summer we went away to Noosa as a family um, with my sisters and their young families and, my uncle came along because he was obviously visiting, wanting to explore Australia, and mm. here he was um, mentoring me. But <laughs> but he he taught me that um, that I'm never alone. Like even when I am alone, I'm never alone. And that was the spiritual side um, being unravelled and 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 being rediscovered. You know, growing up as a Catholic boy, going to church every Sunday, not really understanding why. Um, but always having that place to go as a, as a community, as a family, mm-hmm. you lose that, right? When when you start becoming yeah. an adult and realizing that it's not really relevant, or as you think it's not relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so here I am reconnecting with it at thirty six, and his words were so simple and yet so profound. And the books he got me to read, and um, I started studying meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my executive coach Jackie was basically helping me rebuild my values. So basically defining myself again and understanding who I was as a person and what gave me energy, what made me happy. And it was this just deep dive, just intense level of work, self-work that pulled me out of, pulled me out of this hole that I was in. Um, and, and I shot out the other side, a new man with, with a new sense of being, um, a strength, a resilience, clarity, um, to the point that I realized that my biz- my business was unhealthy, um, and I had to make change, and change meant winding it down, trying to downsize it to manage it. In the end, it wasn't good enough. I had to close it. Mm-hmm. I had to shut it down. So all these stores that you all these building, stores thinking. <coughs> Yeah, that was the path. Yeah, all the, all the celebrities I was dressing, all the footy yeah. clubs, all the 
pro athletes around the world. We're talking NBA players. Mm -hmm. You know, I was the official outfitter for our Davis Cup teams and Fed Cups teams and five Mm -hmm. AFL clubs and stores in every major retail precinct. Mm -hmm. And I had to shut it all down. So the brand, the brand was still strong. It's just the, the heart of the business just was shot, you know. Um, the financial decisions that we were making were the incorrect ones and misguided. And Was there someone giving you that advice or Look, were you... We were in, I was in partnership. Okay. And um, again, I was heavily guided by those around me. I'm not going to finger point or anything, but, you know, I was, I was a man myself. I could have understood the data better, but I didn't. I trusted everyone around me to make those decisions for me. My job was brand and product and design. Mm -hmm. That's where I was pigeonholed. And I guess I lost that instinct of the business and I became an employee. I became the face of the brand that was, like I mentioned before, I became a, a puppet for the business. Um, so all the big financial decisions we were making were being made, um, I guess with me just agreeing to them, thinking it was the right thing without looking at all the data. Um, and being guided by those that I thought knew more than I did. So your business at that point wraps up. Yep. What happens next? Because your brand is out there, stronger than ever. Yeah. What, yeah, what was that process? So the business went into liquidation. Yeah. I managed the wind down. Yeah. So that I could pay everyone that mm-hmm. I was owing to, which I did proudly. Um, I then spent the next three months trying to move the stock that we had left from our warehouse sale. And this was what was giving me purpose. Yeah. I tried to align the value of that stock with a charity or with a, a high net worth individual who could buy it yes, and then donate the goods to charity. Okay. So I was getting trying to get all the right advice and I was very close with one individual to um, sell it all, mm-hmm. which would then aid the liquidation process. So okay. I got permission by the liquidators yes. to do this because they would normally do this. But I said, give me, give me three months. I, I want to do this. Be cool. Right? I want to do this. Because I, I had all my financial services, all my networks yeah. who were now managing high net worth individuals who would see value in buying this stock yeah. um, and, and donating it to but charity. Yeah. Which would then give me more money to then pay my 25 staff, all of their um, entitlements mm-hmm. and and any other su- little supplies that I was yet to sort of fully pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was this close, like I was this close to doing the deal and it became the charity couldn't accept the goods. There was an accounting, there was an accounting rule that stopped them legally from an accounting po- um, point of view to accept the goods from this 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 donor, right? So the whole idea was, anyway, I won't go into the detail, yeah. but but I couldn't do the deal. So the liquidators came in, valued the stock at peanuts and peanuts was distributed in the end. 
So now I was like, okay, now, now what? Right. And, um, and this is the part that nobody knows. Um, I then, it got to Christmas. Yeah. And my brother-in-law was working for Australia Post. And um, he said, you should apply. Just get back out there and work. Just do some work. Get some money. Do some work. In the industry or any kind of work? At the distribution, at the distribution centre for Australia Post. Yeah, yeah. As a, as a Christmas casual. Amazing. So I turn up. They're always looking for people that time. Yeah, of year. right. So yeah. I turn up, to, <laughs> turn up to this induction with like just anybody and everybody. Yeah. Given a hard hat and a high vis vest. Yeah. And um, basically for a week, I pulled trolleys, heavy trolleys, and filled these trolleys with, with Christmas mail and parcels. Um, just to kind of build my confidence again about mm-hmm. being around people and earning money and just being a bit more independent. Um, and then from that point onwards, you know, I, um, I, I stood on my own two feet again and um, uh, an old friend of mine needed some branding help and um, he was trying to launch a hair care product into market. And I got involved with that and straight and straight away the creative juices just started flowing and I helped him sort of rebrand and, and get that product to market. And then that snowballed into, okay, maybe I can do marketing as a service or branding as a service. And in amongst this period of time, I also d- rediscovered um, the love of styling. So I was approached by a good customer who was now lost without my stores and services and I was gifted that Christmas as a present to his wife to take her shopping, not to do anything else, but to, but basically I turned up, I turned up her unknowingly and, um, was the Christmas gift to take her shopping and to help her look and feel good about herself. And that day with her was just so much fun. And I thought, you know, I got to get back into this somehow. So I thought, my brand Godwin, the name Godwin still had, you know, value in the marketplace. People were now lost without my services, those that were really loyal customers. And I thought maybe I can offer styling as a service and diversify between the marketing, branding, a bit of styling and not putting all my eggs in one basket. During that same six-month period, I get approached by the liquidator, Cordamentha, and they told me that there was a group of guys, young guys, who were willing to reinvest. Okay. Yep. And they loved the brand. Um, they revealed that the reason these boys got into the industry was because of my brand. Um, wow. And they thought it'd be an absolute shame if the brand Godwin Charlie didn't exist anymore. And um, so I, I hesitantly went and met these guys Um Hesitant. What was the hesitancy? I was scared. Just scared. Okay. I didn't want yeah. to get back into the into okay. the retail game again, and I'd lost everything. Like yeah. literally lost everything. I was back living at home with my parents, and yeah. you know, I was rebuilding. Yeah. And I didn't want to expose myself like that again. Mm-hmm. Um, but they made me believe again. Um, and but I now knew what was required as an as a person to ensure that I did everything I could to not let what happened 
to me professionally happen again and also personally. So I set out all these conditions. There were 10 of them and um, I put it forward to these guys and I said, listen, if you want, if you want to get involved with me, um, buy back the brand and do what you're saying, these are the conditions that must be adhered to. Mm-hmm. And um, they, with open arms, said, whatever you want, whatever you want. We just, we just want to be aligned with your brand and we want to support it again and but do it a little differently, which is um, the whole premise now of Godwin Charlie's made to measure and customising, basically doing what I was doing as a 10-year-old. <laughs> um but doing it now. Less spotlight runs less, now. Yeah, <laughs> le- no, no spotlight, more trips to Italy. No. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, it's just funny, full circle, how the, the made-to-measure component of my business, which was, you know, prominent in its early days, had been forgotten because I rolled out all these stores mm-hmm. and became a ready-to-wear brand, was now going to resurrect my business. Um, and I lent into that. And it felt right. It felt good. Um, I went and explored the supply chain that was being presented to me through these new partners. Fell in love with it. Realised that some of the biggest global fashion brands were making in these factories. Um, and I'm like, sign me up. So, um, yeah, that was 2018. Mm-hmm. Relaunched 2019. Yeah. Just before COVID. <laughs> But the resilience I'd now formed mm-hmm. as, a, as a human being set me up for success during COVID and then coming out of COVID absolutely thriving and now in a position to open a store across the road from Chanel. Like it's just, yeah, I still pinch myself. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, as one of Australia's most stylish men, given oh. that this podcast is Rule Breaker Style Maker, <laughs> what are um, a couple of recommendations you would give someone to find their best style, mm-hmm. especially if they're feeling a little unclear on what that is right now? Yep. Wear things that make you happy. Mm-hmm. You know, let the mirror do the talking. You know, don't, don't fall into the trap of being guided by, um, you know, magazines all the time or these days it's social media. Um, You know, wear what you feel comfortable um, and experiment. Like, you know, I'll never go – I'll never wear chocolate brown Calvin Klein leather pants again, which I experimented with (laughs) after my school Deb in year 10. (laughs) That's too bad. That that was not – a Chocolate is trending this season. Yeah, I well, say bring yeah. them back. Yeah, 1997, <laughs> uh, not the thing to do. But, you know, experiment. Um, and, yeah, we do, we do get validation from people around us. It's nice to be complimented, right? It's nice to be complimented. And, um, and I think, yeah, that's how I discovered mine. Mm-hmm. And as a designer for men and women, when mm-hmm. it comes to suiting, yep. what's one recommendation you could give? It's got to start with a fit. Fit is in. It is. And, yeah. And, and in this day and age with, with, you know, what I see in women's wear, mm-hmm. um, being so oversized and yes. lacking structure and, you know, that's nice for now. It won't be around forever. And, 
I think, you know, for what I do, it always comes back to the classic and, and um, being true to your shape. Not everything's going to suit you, but just really understanding what that is and going to experts to discover that, what highlights your best bits and what not to do and just being, being very clear on what fits you right um, and what you feel comfortable in, you know. Um, that's the premise of my business now, being made to measure. Everything's customised. You know, I, I present collections, but I reinterpret those collections based on the person standing in front of me. And, and together, and with the help of the mirror, we, um, we create beautiful garments. I love that. I want to thank you for being so generous with your story. And I know that there's a lot of people listening that whether it's them on this journey at the moment of redirection or discovering what is true to them mm. or whether it's someone in their lives, even if it's a young boy, a young goblin, and they know, um, I know that this is going to be of real, real value. So thank you for that generosity. Thanks. And uh, I can't wait to get back into that beautiful store mm. of yours. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for our conversation with Godwin Hilly of Godwin Charlie. You can find more about Godwin Charlie at Godwin, G-O-D-W-I-N, Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-I dot com. And for more information on Rule Breaker Style Maker, if you'd like to keep up to date with episodes and podcast news and what we do here at ASI, be sure to follow our Instagram at Australian Style Institute. And you can follow my personal account at Lauren D. Bartolo. And I look forward to catching you in the next episode.